Welcome to the Urban Agorist Podcast, episode number one. My name is James, and today I am joined by Landry Harmon. As always, you can find today's show notes at urbanagorist.com slash one. With that out of the way, let's get straight into it. All right, welcome. This is the inaugural episode of Urban Agorist. Uh, my name is James Gentleman. I am joined by Landry Harmon, who's been helping me along with all the planning here. Landry is what, the director of marketing or something like that? Is that right? Yeah, I'll, yeah. yeah. more fan, uh, CMO, director of marketing, anything that makes it sound, whatever's more fancy to you. <laughs> CMO then for sure. CMO, uh, okay, CMO. Jack of all trade. You're, you also do a lot of just kind of the behind the scenes stuff for Thaddeus Russell's Unregistered and Renegade University. Yep. Uh, and what, you're gonna be co-hosting something with him, is that right? Yeah, yeah. We're trying to get his um, Patreon set up. And once we get that, we'll have some bonus content coming out, which I'll be kind of part of. So yeah, yet another, on-screen talent, finally. Yet another method for Thad to take our money. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's see. This has been kind of a journey. We've been working, you and I have been working for, mm. what, a month, maybe a little bit more to get this kind of yeah. off the road, off the ground. End of the summer um, is sort of the startup phase, right? Yeah. Uh, actually met in person for the first right. time last month. That's true. That was, yeah. I didn't even think about how weird it was that how long it's been since we've known each other. I know we've known each other for years. I mean, you were still a teenager. Like you were what, like 19? Right. I was still, cause I joined and I guess we'll get to that later in the episode, but yeah, the Tom Woods group, I probably joined right when I was starting to graduate from high school. So yeah, yeah I think I was still a high schooler. Man. And so that's, that's kind of where we, where we met, I guess, uh, online right. anyway. So it's been years cause you're in your early twenties now. So yes. Um, yeah, I guess we can kind of start there. What, what, a so you were like in a kind of conservative Christian high school and yeah. then what happened? Yeah. So I kind of started in a, in yeah, Bush era, <laughs> you know, like kind of neocon evangelical Christian. That was sort of the wavelength that I grew up in, you know, Bible class every day, et cetera, et cetera. And it was kind of, it was a limiting space as far as like thinking goes, um, you know, 6,000 year old earth, et cetera. Um, But there, I'm very thankful for a teacher that I had there um, named Mr. Parrish. And he was an Iraq war veteran, served overseas, became like many veterans disillusioned with kind of the cause and like, what, what are we doing over there? What is this whole thing? Um, And sort of did a libertarian turn uh, I was told too young for like Ron Paul 2008, but I had him as my middle school teacher uh, in seventh grade. And because of how small my school was, I had like 14 people in my graduating class. So mm. very small. Um, I got to have him as my teacher, like throughout high school and middle school. And he had a major influence on me. Like in seventh grade, he's telling me about Mises and Rothbard and Ayn Rand. And so like, that's kind of began my interest in libertarianism. And then as I sort of grappled with, um, foreign policy especially was sort of a, a thing for me and I sort of had a like a Giuliani moment like five years after the fact um, watching a debate clip on YouTube um, so that was definitely like something as far as my major turn towards libertarianism and then after that it was sort of reconciling this evangelical beliefs that I was growing up in and the fact that the state you know because it's like where like gay marriage was sort of still looming large before the supreme court case was being made so that's like Mm. a large part of the conversation you were having in evangelical circles was this so for me it was just like i didn't make sense to why 
people of different beliefs and different uh, philosophies and ideologies had to, like why Christians felt they should be suppressing and oppressing people via their own hegemony in like via the state, right? So it's like I started to question um, the state as a tool to bring about that kind of cultural or social change. And now, funnily enough, I'm, I got to university and I got to campus and now it's like the the evangelical Christians are not the political force that they used to be, yeah. in my opinion. And now it's it's a different kind of religion from the left. Um, and so I find myself in both places in a space where I think free thinking people are struggling to uh, find others and uh, believe what they actually believe and say what they actually want to say. So yeah, can, um, that's kind of where I'm at right now. It can feel oppressive you? and suppressive. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Well, so for me, let's see. I, so we both grew up in the DFW uh, Metroplex. I was in Dallas and right. you in Fort Worth. Um, I'm significantly older than you, like 15 years. Let's see. So I went to a Catholic high school and um, it was not nearly as conservative as it sounds like yours was. We were, right. you know, we were taught evolution. And I remember my dad throwing a fit because he was a l- little bit more of a fundamentalist, even though he like identified as Catholic, huh. he wasn't really as Catholic as like, um, I guess more like progressive Catholics would have him be, but, uh, right. Yeah. So I guess I, I grew up in sort of a standard issue, like center, right. Um, fiscally conservative, socially liberal type house. So like, uh, yeah, we were, we were kind of homophobic and definitely pro-life, but like nothing was like super duper passionate. Um, and so, yeah, it, for me, it was also the foreign policy thing after nine 11, um, I discovered a website called Working for Change. Actually, it's where Matt Welch from Reason got his oh. kind of journalistic start back in the U.S. He was he was covering uh, the Ralph Nader campaign um, back then, and so he was so he was writing for them. And there were a bunch of other anti-war voices. They were mainly from the left, uh, but even I mean, he wasn't he wasn't considering himself libertarian even when he started at Reason. So. In any case, uh, yeah, so the the post 9-11 era was sort of where I cut my political teeth. Then I kind of took a turn for the strongly conservative Catholic. Back then, a conservative Catholic was also anti-war. Like, I'm guessing they probably still are largely. Um, but being that the Iraq war was such a big thing in the war on terror, um, Pope John Paul II and Benedict after him were both pretty strongly anti-war, even though they were considered far more conservative than the current Pope. Um, So I even went kind of beyond them into this sort of subsect of Catholicism um, that is sort of like real into the Latin mass and and kind of old school traditional Catholicism. Um, And so weirdly, I discovered Ron Paul and Tom Woods uh, from this Catholic blog since so Tom, Tom Woods wrote a book called uh, the Is how the Catholic Church, church the built, no it was how the Catholic Church built Western uh, civilization and so this blogger reviewed that book glowingly um, but he said even though he's a libertarian uh, I really like this book and the, so this guy this blogger his name's Mark Shea he was um, super like anti-libertarian uh, mm-hmm. and then when Ron Paul ran for president he was like well this guy's pro-life and anti-war um, nobody else is like that. I guess he's going to be my candidate, uh, right. even though he's libertarian. Um, so I kind of 
went down the Ron Paul, Tom Woods rabbit hole. Uh, um, God, it was so long ago. I'm like trying to remember. Uh, so, okay. So I was sort of like the constitutional libertarian, like Ron Paul was always talking about the constitution, which I think right. um, is probably long-term a disservice to libertarianism. And the reason for that is that you have now, like the Cato Institute, for instance, is sort of the mainline libertarian organization or reason or whatever. And they're out passing out their pocket constitutions and stuff, which, you know, I mean, to me, the, the constitution is like the foundation document for maybe not the most oppressive, but definitely the most powerful state in the history of humanity. Right. Um, so I, I think, I think that also if you have a politics that is rooted in in the constitution, it's rooted in going backwards, right? It's a conservatism yeah. of some sort. Right. And to me, my favorite libertarians are, are, are sort of futurists as far as how they think that things that can be improved upon. Not, and again, it's like there's people who do important work as far as like defending, you know, the bill of rights or whatever in the court system. And while we live under this oppressive state mm. or so on, it's good for people to do that kind of work. But ultimately, libertarian theory and libertarian thinkers, I think, should be pointing forwards rather than backwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's, that's a really good point. That, so um, real quick, back to my little path uh, or whatever. Right. I heard Tom Woods interviewing Lou Rockwell once, or maybe it was vice versa. It might have been Tom on Lou's show. I don't know. It was years ago. Um, but Lou said... I'm no fan of the constitution, but, and then he went off on some thing about how something was unconstitutional or whatever. And that completely rocked my world. The idea that a libertarian could be no mm. fan of the constitution when these two things were part and parcel for me, um, mm. that set me down on a whole new rabbit hole. Uh, so I discovered Rothbard and then just here more recently. So probably what, 10 years or so since then, um, I discovered agorism, which, uh, I had heard the term and I followed Sal the agorist uh, on Snapchat and Instagram and stuff, but that was mainly for the memes. Um, and Thad, he, uh, he introduced agorism um, in the context of Anarchapulco a few years ago, uh, but it wasn't until I heard Pete Quinones um, say that he had mm -hmm. taken the full, the full leap into this kind of new and upcoming philosophy and um, not that it's nothing that's new and upcoming, but new and upcoming, like in the mainstream of libertarianism, I think we're kind of all agorists now in, in 2020, you mm -hmm. know, when you don't know what the next thing's going to be, uh, if they can lock us down and force us to wear masks and stuff, you, you never know. Like it's sure. to me, the, the precedents that have been set this year are what give me complete disregard for and no hope for the political system. Um, mm -hmm. but back to your point about, about libertarians being future looking like uh i think i think i read that sam sam conkin the sort of developer of agorist theory got his start um as like a sci-fi fan like that's where he got his sort of anti-government mentality right uh, and you know i mean the 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 roots of the roots of libertarianism so therefore kind of go all the way back to um, early 20th century and mid 20th century sci-fi. Yeah, I think I think there's something there as well as that. To me, like the crypto movement coming out of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. primarily, right, was also sort of a surge of like, how can we build systems outside the predominant political structure, right? How can we, you know, rather than, 
you know, the in the Fed movement tried its best, still worthwhile. But like, what if we create our own systems outside of it, and and then via competition we show people forward. And, you know, still it's still in progress. Um, that that sort of also changed my thinking as well as going to Thaddeus Russell and going to all these things that there's some missing component towards this um, political variant of libertarianism that there should be something more. I think there's something about like the culture. Um, which is funny. It's like, I think, I think uh, right wing libertarians and left wing libertarians have sort of realized that the culture is something that they should focus on and um, both have seized it in different ways. Um, yet to what end, I don't know. But yeah. uh, I, I think the culture cult, so it's like, it's the part of the culture, it's part of building something outside of it. And ultimately seeing politics as a, as a old traditional form uh, of of action and there's new ways via technology to to liberate yourself and liberate your community and liberate uh, the world as well. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I, and it's it's almost depressing to see sort of like where a lot of people are going. Like, so you've got the LP and the people who really really are kind of digging into the the yeah. If we can just get Joe Jorgensen on the debate stage, like right. I mean. I, I would cringe so much. I, have you seen her speak? Like she's, she's as a libertarian, she's great. Like, uh, yeah. and actually, apparently she got her start in agorist like circles. I, I, okay. I met with her and um, I, I told her that I was an anarchist because at the time, like this, this whole agorist thing is kind of new for me. Like I was at the LP convention, what, four months ago. Right. Um, like as a delegate. Uh, yeah. And um, so I met with her and she told me that, uh, you know, oh, yeah, I, I got my start in these A3 circles back in the 80s. Uh, and I, I had never heard of them back, you know, at, at the time. Um, right. But uh, yeah, that's sort of the old agorist logo. You still see it sometimes like on Twitter and stuff. Yeah, I, I can't imagine, back to the point, I can't imagine her on the debate stage. I mean, she she wouldn't get time to speak. When she did get time to speak, she would just be speaking in abstracts. She wouldn't sell the message to anybody. And that's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. Like libertarianism isn't popular to everybody. And right. I think that's what libertarians need to come to grips with is that most people aren't going to want your philosophy. They don't care about your logical consistency. They don't care that you know you're offering them liberty when they've got a coronavirus lurking around every corner looking to kill them right um, i i always think as far as in accordance to the political structure libertarian and the libertarian position at best remains critique rather than something that can actually install like a new order right that like the fact that libertarians can be sort of this golden uh you know platform as far as like oh we've been about marriage legalization since the 70s or drug legalization you know they've been on yeah. these things and these issues and they can always kind of critique both left and right yeah. on a very principled perspective i think that's that's a useful way of using those politics but at the same time um it's just like in this crazy conversation that is happening across america it's like i don't think even if the libertarian side of the debate stage would that voice resonate with anyone and as you said it's like the hl minkin thing right most, most people want to be safe and in this yeah. time of like terror and uh uh fear-mongering from both sides they're both playing off of that and then you know the libertarian message of sort of self-reliance and sort of uh, uh, freedom i don't know that, that would even play well with this sort of 
uh, it would resonate with Americans in, during this period. So. Right. Or really any period. I mean, yeah. If you if you look back in history, and uh, you know, you you hear a lot about the right side of history, and it's almost always been the libertarian position. Um, but you don't know that until half a century later. You know, right. like I I had never heard any criticism of World War One until my mm. adult years. We're just now starting to hear criticisms of World War Two. Right. Um, and you know that's coming up on a century since since World War II and more than a century since World War I. So yeah, what, what else, what do you think of the libertarian right right now? Um, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's an interesting position with everything uh, in the Trump era. Trump has inflected greatly upon it. And I think yeah. everything right now is in flux and in reaction to Trump as a figure and the cultural zeitgeist. And to me, in my personal opinion, I think libertarians on the right have been too sucked into like Trump, Trump politics and Trump uh, uh, rhetoric. Um, And, you know, that's like the thing with the sort of the battle within the LP, right? Which is like, what is the right messaging? How do we do this? Black Lives Matter versus whatever the Mises caucus says, as far as like not having, you know, focusing on individuals or whatever, which may, um, I just think it's been inflamed to, yourself as oppositional to the left i think that's kind of like become so much so that that most people are operating off the basis of beating the other side rather than really trying to build what whatever you have on our side and i don't know if that's a winning strategy but again i'm not that 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 interested into political winning strategies at this point but it really has become more like our enemy the left rather than our enemy the state we all know one of the easiest ways to start gaining self-sufficiency is to grow our own food Whether you're an urban agorist living in the city or an urban agorist at heart living on your homestead out in the country, you need seeds. Unique heirloom seeds are becoming endangered. 90% fewer varieties of seeds are planted today than just two generations ago. And just a handful of large corporations control the majority of our seeds. Seeds are disappearing all the time and they're being replaced by cookie cutter varieties that are bred for profit, not for flavor, robustness, yield, and certainly not the unique needs of your garden. Whether or not you're already gardening or saving seeds, I invite you to join me at the Online Global Seed Summit from November 17th through the 20th to revolutionize your understanding of seeds and the role they play in your and our collective future. To learn more about the Global Seed Summit, head to urbanagorist.com summit. When you sign up for the Global Seed Summit, you will connect with a global community of people who are committed to a healthier future. Now more than ever, people are beginning to realize the importance of taking control of their own food-secure future. Take control yourself at the Global Seed Summit. Head to urbanagorist.com summit to sign up today, and I'll see you there. One kind of troubling thing that I've been seeing a lot of is like advocacy for violence, not just like... Mm self-defense violence but like taking it to the streets summary execution of like people that they see as unsavory that kind of thing right um and it's not even just like joking joking about helicopters it's that started a couple of years ago but now it's like oh i you know i'm gonna if i see someone doing behavior that i disapprove of x then you know a bullet to the head would be mercy like right that kind of rhetoric is really really troubling to me um, and I don't know if it stems from Trump. Maybe it does. Uh, I just, I, like I think hope- it does. I mean, I think if you look at, there's been polls that have been done every year of the Trump presidency 
obviously doesn't include libertarians, but it does include sure. Democrats and Republicans and how much every from every year political violence is normalized amongst mm. now we're at, in 2020, it was 30% and 36% for Republicans and Democrats respectively. It might have that the other way around, but that's something I think that's very worrying, right? And I think the best part of the libertarian ethos, and that's kind of what drew me to in the first place, is that you can have a system in which people of different beliefs and different ways of life and different desires as far as how they want to realize um, their systems mm -hmm. within a greater freer structure, that's possible, right? Like you can be a, you know, there's like the famous saying, you can be a socialist and the libertarian or ANCOM or whatever, right? Yeah. In, in a libertarian uh, society, but not the other way around. And I think that's, that's a big plus to the system of freedom that how libertarians have imagined it. And yeah, I think there is definitely this kind of rhetoric at the very least. I don't know if it's, I don't, I haven't seen anything as far as action goes, but definitely rhetoric has been inflamed, but I would say that's very much just the hyper politicization um, during the Trump era. That's just working every on everybody on every side. So do you, do you think that, uh, do you think that that would diminish if Trump were uh, voted out of office or after the end of his second term? Yeah, that's or a good point. That's kind of, yeah, I think at some point it's, it's, this is, you, we have opened and played the card. We have opened box and played the cards already, right? So the fact that this is like the, the lowest common denominator about how you can, how someone can act as president, right? That's sort of, that's sort of the case in contemporary politics now. I think, you know, a Biden presidency will be somewhat a return to form, but yeah, the big question is what does the right wing, what does Republicans do into response to a Trump presidency? And I don't I don't see it easily going away from that kind of politics. Um, because it's it's worked on some level. Um, they've definitely pulled a string and touched a nerve. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, I I'm not sure. I, I think that's gonna be the fascinating thing to watch. But yeah. Well, and you've got I guess it doesn't go so away. Right. You've got you've got people on the left now who are saying, yeah, you know, if sure, vote for Biden, but we know where he's going to live. Like, if he doesn't give him give us what we want, we don't mm -hmm. have to stop right. the riots and this unrest and stuff, you know? Um, I think that's going to be the fascinating thing, right, is yeah. if a Biden presidency, you get the, the, the outbreak and the breakdown, rather, of the left coalition, right? Because, mm -hmm. like, it's very loosely unified yeah. by getting the orange man bad out. Um, but if he is out then what what happens and i think we're going to really see the different fractions and the breaking up of the democratic party in that in, in the next four years if biden wins yeah or the or just the the establishment uh sort of taking over the the what is today the left wing of the democratic party just like with the tea party i mean the tea party doesn't That's exist true. anymore um, right, right largely because of tea party members i don't know if it's tea party members uh, compromising on their on their values, or if it was just complete infiltration by, you know, would be establishment mm -hmm. players into the Tea Party. I definitely think I, I don't know. In my opinion, I think this there's something there's something interesting about uh, that comparison between the Tea Party movement and a you know woke or this kind of new mm -hmm. leftism coming out, and it's clearly amongst my generation very. Uh, uh, popular right amongst people yeah. my age that kind of sensibility of race these these 
issues about what government should do. Um, Bernie Sanders definitely formed a lot of people's thinking on that sort of yeah. maybe how Ron Paul was to some people in your generation, right? And I was maybe on the, like the last cusp of people that were influenced him in that way. But um, that's the thing that, that like, you know, they're going into these newspapers, they're going to become professors, they're going to become school teachers, and they're going to become parents, you know, these kind of like this ideology on the long run, like I'm more worried about this thing because of how widespread it was. Like I have this joke that like, you know, as I was saying earlier in the episode that I went to this like Christian conservative school and I was mm-hmm. on Instagram swiping up during all the George Floyd stuff. And I saw, I saw girls that I knew from my school, Christian girls, you know, talking about prison abolition. I was like, you just learned that word. You don't know what that <laughs> means. And now you're a, a believer and anybody who disagrees with you is a racist that believes right. in systematic racism. Right. And that's, what's crazy to me is how quickly and to the same degree, how quickly, um, like Reaganite free trade Republicans became like populist mercantilists. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's, it's both, but like, obviously that kind of politics is dying out on the right wing just by age versus this like left wing amongst the youth is definitely going to be uh, part of the discourse for the next 20 years. And I don't, I don't, I don't see that shaking out um, to a different way, but I don't know it, it, how, how politicians, if they can usurp that movement, like they did the tea party would be, also something to watch. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Tea Partiers, they were organized, but they weren't quite as fiery, I think, as uh, the squad or whatever. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's the problem is that they didn't have any ideas because they were like, there's weird quasi-conservatarian, you know, they like, like, like at least the, the very fact I can give respect for Bernie or left people is that they have like an idea or a program for everything. Like, whether you like it or not, Medicare for all or the Green New Deal is a lot more substantive and a lot more voters can see that as an actual thing rather than like the weird Republican, whatever yeah. their response is to healthcare, right? It's like, it's a, what is yeah. it, right? Because I, I ultimately, I don't think they're very rooted in, in the ideology. And then Trump has come in and made it very much so that they're not well, rooted in anything. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if, if you're, if you're of the leave me alone variety of, conservatarian or whatever the don't tread on me folks um you know that scene is scary for the same reason Mm. that that anything anything less government is scary uh back to the back to the safety thing Um, right you know if if you've got a politician who doesn't have a bunch of plans then what good are they to a huge segment of the of the the population right exactly that's why it's like that's why there's only going to be at max like a one Ron Paul, a one Justin. Like, there's going to be there's a yeah. there is a hard limit on how many of those people there can be in a system because yeah. like you have to have people that are going to be oh we're going to perpetuate this we're going to grow this because that's what sells to someone right like uh, at this point you know people would sacrifice freedom for all these kind of luxuries that a government could provide them right and yeah. that's the sort of the the equation that a lot of Americans I think are having in their head. Um, and I think it's part of the failures that the right wing has not done anything significant in terms of reform or actual positive visions of these sort of projects, right? Um, like privatization in a real way and actual pricing structures in medicine. I mean, um, and letting uh, medicine come across the borders. I mean, Trump has, I guess, done something with the FDA and that kind of process. Mm-hmm. That's probably one of the things that deregulatory stuff yeah. on that end has well, probably been the one thing. Under, especially during this pandemic. I mean, uh, right, who knows who knows how many of those temporary 
liftings of regulations are going to become permanent, especially if he gets a second term. I mean, um, I think a lot of the a lot of the things that Trump has done as far as deregulation goes have been on the whole good. Uh, right. Uh, so but, but on the whole good, but this is a problem is that, you know, and I'm getting like flashbacks to Fox News in 2014 yeah. during the Obama era, but like it's all via executive order, right? right? It's like day one, this could all get reversed. So to me, it's like, sure, the short-term economic boosts in these kind of areas and industries are good, but nothing long-term change, right? Um, as far as long-lasting bills in, in the Senate, in the House or whatever. So yeah. the core, I guess, is going to be the real legacy um, of the Trump era, probably yeah for sure uh and not just the supreme court which they you know very well right could pack but uh the lower courts as well i mean he's he's placed so many judges like mm-hmm. um it's just that so many you know are had been ready to retire who had been you know put in put on the bench by reagan and bush and bush uh yeah. and probably even clinton i mean i i don't i don't really know but he's yeah he's got he's he's had a huge impact on the courts um, and, you know, incidentally, that's kind of where libertarians and conservatives have a lot of overlap. Right. So that's true. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's another kind of good point of the Trump presidency. Uh, mm. Obviously, he's not my favorite person in the world, but <laughs> you know, right. as, as presidents go, I, I'd give him a solid C. Uh, yeah. I, I don't really, I don't really know like what the future holds and mm. Um, but I, I am, I'm really, really, really optimistic that counter economics is going to play a part in that. And the reason for that, the reason I think that is that right now we're seeing a huge, um, coalescing of like massive companies, um, and the pandemic, you know, wiping out all the small businesses that they they did and, um, that, will continue to be wiped out in what is undoubtedly going to be a, a continuing recession. Um, that's mm. going to leave behind the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world, but it's also going to create a lot of opportunities for people who um, just want to do their own little under the table or maybe even not under the table, but opening their own Shopify store or their own right. butcher shop. I, I, I've got a, I've got a um, like migrant butcher uh, on the docket to interview. Um, what do you, so what do you think, what do you think the future for counter economics, black and gray markets and that sort of thing holds? Is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? Am I completely like you, you know, a little bit more about black markets and stuff than I do. Um, and so I might just be completely ignorant as to the state of them prior to today. I I don't even know. I mean, definitely within, I think I think what's very promising is that you're sort of seeing people. One, a system is continually getting delegitimized, right? The political system, the political structure. I think both left and right. The one positive thing is that like both people know something screwy happening in Washington, yeah. right? Um, which can not always, but can lead people into seeing alternatives, um, and <laughs> usually bad alternatives. But there are some <laughs> people that I think are actually thinking about okay, what if this all breaks down? What happens, right? And what what do we do? Um, and obviously, like, the lockdown is one of the uh, craziest economic... I mean, basically, like, sanctioning American society as far as the lockdowns go and how many businesses gone out of business as well and seeing billions of dollars go to 
like multi-billionaire, multi-billion dollar corporations and even some politicians own like corporations getting money and stuff. It's just, I think there's a understanding that some level the system's messed up, even a moderate, even someone who's not really tuned in knows something's going on. Um, which is a, a, from a libertarian perspective, at least, is, is positive. But on the terms of black markets, I think it's very interesting that we're seeing people like encryption and VPNs or something that's like that, that kind of technology is sort of spreading. I think a lot of people, a lot more people are thinking about their own data um, and protecting it, which allows me to sort of map on is that, oh, if you can get someone to think about that, right, encryption, and what about peer-to-peer markets what about these kind of things what about cryptocurrencies like if we can kind of continue down that road we can kind of draw people into this kind of world uh of black markets and gray markets but um you know that's i mean again it's like what what you have when you have recessions you're gonna have people who try to get by and by other means um and those means will be proliferated and popularized and now protected because of the internet and protected because of encryption and all these uh new tools right that before you know you had to do these deals in the dark you had to do them in alleyway like that's what's so fascinating now is that they're digital alleyways they're digital dark spaces there's places where and this is like the almost to the psychology of human behavior right like how a person can change when the sun is out versus the when the moon's out yeah. is very interesting and the internet the internet allows you know you can see this in porn probably most clearly allows like the depravity of humanity but also like sort of the unrepression of humanity because yeah. you can come out in certain ways and i think that includes all kind of gray markets and black markets as well for sure. I, I think, I, and even, you know, as, as much as Facebook is just another arm of the state, I mean, mm-hmm. Facebook marketplace is a great place to do all kinds of gray market activity. I, you know, I, when I was down in Dallas, I saw tamales for sale uh, on Facebook oh, really? marketplace all the time. And there's like farmers selling their meat up here in Minnesota. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you know, stuff that they would technically need a license for or some, some sort of regulatory uh, permission. And they're just doing it right out in the open on Facebook marketplace. And, and, you know, I mean, if they got caught, I'm sure there would be a penalty to pay, but there's so many people doing it. And even, you know, just selling your old clothes on eBay or Facebook or whatever, nobody's paying income tax on that crap. Uh, right. So, you know, I mean, even if you just wanted to make a few extra bucks and doing it just sort of as a thumb, thumbing in the nose at the, at the state, um, right. I think it's a, a great way to do that kind of thing. <laughs> The marketplace is such a great point, right? Which is that the beautiful thing about the internet and a lot of these, like, again, um, technologies we're seeing that are emergent that, you know, 20 years ago, you had to be like a Snowden level Mm -hmm. PC engine. You know, you needed to know a lot of technical information, how to do some of this stuff, how to have like a a VPN like service. But now it's like the consumerism aspect. And this is like, you know, uh, regular markets coming into play of, making this technology uh, mass producible and also uh, adoptable by the masses, right? Is mm-hmm. that like now your grandma who now knows how to operate her iPhone camera after five years can take photos of her, you know, of her, of her, whatever she makes of her products yeah. or whatever and places on there. And then she can find sell it. Like that's the beautiful thing yeah. about, about these technologies is that now anybody can, can do it without even doing it. And that's like the fascinating thing. And that's going to, Thaddeus's argument is that all of them were rebels against the state without even knowing it, right? Like right. they were, they were the best, like the, as far as anarchy, anarchists, they were the best anarchists. Like the people during World War II who were wearing zoot suits, that's like, what bigger 
middle finger to the state is that that i'm like you guys are rationing your stuff and i'm over here wearing the most extravagant yeah. suit possible with the most like i'm wasting i'm like that's like the stuff that i'm fascinated <laughs> about is the sort of unconscious rebellion towards the state just via these kind of market or via culture you know all that yeah. stuff going on you're rationing um, you're rationing chickens and i've got a big ass feather in my hat right exactly exactly and that's like it's amazing all right great well what else what do you what do you have to plug where can people find you do you have anything that uh, anybody can do for you that will yeah. make your life better um so if you you can find me add me on facebook i add basically anybody that i have like 20 mutual friends that's kind of like to me the like my libertarian journey as well is just like adding everybody that's um there um i do have an yeah. instagram uh, Landry underscore creative. I have a website called Landry S Um, so you can find me on all those places. Um, yeah, I'm hopefully going to post more as well. Talk a little bit, uh, before we go, I think we've got a few minutes left, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm good. You, you wrote a really good, um, oh. kind of article on like art in the Nazi era or something like that. It was, a, it was a while back, but, uh, yeah. Well, the one which, I, I, I I have some stuff that I've been working on in the Nazi era, especially some of the degenerate art shows, which are really interesting. But um, the one that I'm talking, you might be talking about is the Soviet art um, mm. with the tower. Um, that's the article you can find on my website at LandrySharman.com. Um, but yeah, so essentially I was sort of contrasting the Eiffel Tower to this sort of hypothetical tower that a famous Soviet constructivist, that's sort of the um, art movement he's part mm. of, um, named Tatlin and he wanted to build this sort of tower for the common term right which was this the global communist organization out of Moscow um, and St. Petersburg uh, Leningrad and Stalingrad um, and so that's was sort of what he was working on and it was very interesting about like uh, sort of what I was writing about and you could read in the article about the Eiffel Tower being this kind of place of pleasure right it's like now like music comes out of it that you used Back then, a lot of the radio in Paris would be coming out of the Eiffel Tower. There's obviously restaurants. You see this beautiful view of like um, of Paris from there. And that the Tatlin Tower was all for the purposes of work and for propaganda. It literally would have projectors that would would project onto the cloudy night skies uh, messages from from Marx and Lenin. So that sort of to me talks about like the aesthetic value, right, and the aesthetic value of pleasure um, that there's this puritanistic element in Marxist ideology is certainly communism in the form of Leninism is, is there and it's, it's very inherent and it's inherent into the art and the architecture that they wanted to build, right? Like brutalism, as much as I love concrete, like concrete is one of my favorite uh, materials, but like brutalism is all about, again, it's like, there's no pleasure to it. There's no, there's nothing to grab onto as yeah. far as aesthetically. Um, so that was kind of contrasting the two. Yeah. Right. I still have, I saw, I've been having, I've been getting into writing more often and trying to write more regularly. I have a bunch of photos I haven't even put on there, like stuff from North Korea um, that I kind of want to put up there. Um, all kind of different stuff, fiction. That's still something I'm working on. You can find my Twitter and Instagram there as well at LandrySHarman.com. Yeah, so, so. LandrySHarman.com. Then I guess that's where everybody should check you out. And I yeah. encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter. And that is a wrap. Awesome. All right. Thanks again to Landry Harmon for helping me out with this very first episode of the Urban Agorist podcast. And thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can find today's show notes and every other episode's show notes at urbanagorist.com. And we will see you on the next one. 
This is the way.